Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. As we just read, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. And uh, as you make your way there uh, in your Bible or on your phone or whatever it might be, I want you to think about uh, some of the stupidest fights that you have ever had. Notice I didn't ask you, have you ever had stupid fights? I'm assuming that you have because you're human, and so I'm just asking you, think back to some of the fights that you've had that uh, are really rather insignificant. I would go out on a limb and say probably a sig- significant proportion of the arguments, of the debates, of the discussions, of the fights uh, that you actually have are really over these insignificant sort of issues. That's certainly true of me. Two of my biggest fights from childhood were over really silly things. And so one of them was uh, whenever I was telling uh, my uh, family about some of the significant uh, inventions of Thomas Edison, they said that I said Thomas Jefferson. And I said, no, I did not. And they said, yes, you did. And, uh, and I assumed that they were just jealous of my uh, superior seven-year-old trivial knowledge. They assumed I was being a jerk. They were uh, definitely right about that. I was maybe even right about the uh, Jefferson Edison sort of thing. About a year after that, we had this huge blow up uh, regarding who spilt a carton of milk and didn't tell anybody and didn't clean uh, it up. And, uh, and so this turned into a couple of hour long process of my parents sitting down, all three uh, of the kids, and, uh, and asking who did it, and all three of us denying that we did it. And, uh, and then finally, my brother confessing to it. And the reason he confessed was just simply because he didn't want to sit there any longer. And I know that because he didn't actually spill the milk. I spilled the milk. And uh, I admitted that to my mom literally 10 years later. And she said, I knew that very day. And uh, so I'm not even a good liar. Likewise, my biggest fight with my wife, uh, Casey, Uh, wasn't over something that's really important, some sort of theological conviction or gender roles in marriage or politics or something like that. Rather, our biggest fight ever, literally the only one that I think that we've gone to bed kind of angry with each other was about the air conditioning. (laughs) She was pregnant with my daughter. We couldn't agree on the proper uh, temp. She wanted it even hotter. I thought she should just put on more clothes. Uh, I thought that she just loved wasting money. She thought I loved the idea of her freezing to death. And in all of these stories, there's this pattern. Well, there's actually two patterns. The first pattern is that I seem to be wrong in all of them. But the second one is that these are really trivial, insignificant sort of things. Who cares? At the end of the day, does it really matter if I misspoke or not? I meant to say Edison, I accidentally said uh, Jefferson. Does it really matter who spilt the milk? In fact, there is an actual saying, don't cry over spilled milk, right? Does it really matter what the ideal temperature is? Uh, and, and yet, we have these uh, insignificant issues that lead to these big conflicts. And that's kind of what we see in our text today, at least on the surface, there is this stupid fight, this really insignificant sort of issue, which apostle is the best. Who's the best preacher? Who's the best teacher? Apollos, he's really eloquent. But Paul wrote like most of the New Testament. So this is kind of picking up, our text is picking up something that we actually saw a a few weeks back, all the way back in chapter one. And so we'll put that up on the screen. Chapter one, verse 12. Paul begins this argument. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, 
or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's also uh, Peter, or I follow Christ. And so all of chapter two was kind of this parenthesis and the argument to show why it is that they're having these conflicts that they're having in Corinth. The conflicts are just a symptom of a much deeper issue. The deeper issue, as we've seen over the past few weeks, as we uh, have gotten into chapter two and then into the beginning of chapter three, that deeper issue is that the Corinthians are not thinking according to God's revealed wisdom. They're not thinking according to the spirit. Instead, they're thinking according to the flesh and they're allowing the world and the culture to influence them. So that's what we're gonna see in our text today. We'll pick up the argument that we began way back in chapter one. So let's pray and then we'll dive in to see how he picks up this theme of conflict again. Ask you just uh, first to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And then would you pray that same prayer for those around you, for us uh, collectively, corporately, that we as a body might uh, uh, be rebuked where we need to be rebuked and encouraged where we need to be encouraged. And then lastly for me, that I would be faithful to God's word, not twist it or pervert it, Father, we thank you. You're a good God. You're a good Father who gives good gifts. And so we're grateful for the gift of your scripture and opportunity for us to open it. And we pray that your spirit would uh, help illumine uh, it to us so that we might uh, respond in, uh, in worship and obedience. We pray these things uh, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's look in verse four. First Corinthians chapter three, verse four. For when one says... I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Now, this seems like a weird place to start unless we're aware of the kind of overarching context. So what's the context? Let's look back briefly at our passage from last week that uh, that Tim uh, preached. 1 Corinthians chapter three, verses one through three. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So Paul is talking about jealousy and strife and this division as a work of the flesh rather than a work of the spirit. And then this then leads him back to the argument that he's already made in chapter one, that this division in Corinth with the Paul party and the Apollos party and the Peter party and the Christ party is rooted in this sinful strife that he's just talked uh, about. By the, one, uh, by the way, in chapter one, he mentions these four people, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, and Christ. But here, he's only going to mention uh, himself, Paul, and then Apollos because he's going to then transition to talk about the original foundation of the church and, and, uh, and ongoing ministry in the church, which is something that only uh, himself and Apollos actually carried out. And so that's why he only mentions those two rather than uh, all four. So that's the context of our passage. Now, as mentioned in the, uh, in, in the introduction, he started this train of thought nearly two chapters back, all the way in chapter one, and yet he's just now getting to it. 
So why is that? Why is it that he takes this sort of digression? Why is it that he, that, that he kind of has this parenthetical remark that is the rest of chapter one and all of chapter two? And the reason is in order to demonstrate what is actually happening in the dispute. Again, think back to some of those really stupid fights that you've had. I would imagine that the thing that you're fighting about is not really the thing that you're fighting about. Right? When we're fighting over spilled milk, we're not actually fighting about the milk, we're fighting about a lack of uh, honesty. Uh, we're fighting about the fact that I was irresponsible enough to not clean it up or not tell anybody. Whenever we're fighting about the AC, that's not actually about the AC. Instead, that has to, to do with things like comfort and money and security and a host of other issues. Likewise, Paul has spent the past two chapters showing that this particular conflict in Corinth isn't really about Paul and Apollos, it's rather about the attitudes and the assumptions of the Corinthians. Namely, that they're thinking in accordance with the flesh and not the spirit. They're allowing the flesh, they're allowing worldliness, they're allowing Corinthian culture to influence their assumptions rather than having their minds renewed according to the knowledge of God. Remember, uh, that was how our passage ended last week, 1 Corinthians 3, 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Notice that final phrase, behaving only in a human way. That's gonna be parallel to what we read in our text this week that says being merely human. Those mean the same thing. And that isn't a jab at humanity. That isn't a, a jab at humans. This may shock you, but Paul's actually a human. <gasps> Right? Paul's a human. Even uh, the Son of God took on flesh and became man. So the problem isn't humanity in general, but fallen humanity in particular, and what's called the noetic effects of the fall. N-O-E-T-I-C. Noetic is from a Greek word that means of the mind or related to the mind. And so that's, uh, this is the idea that sin has so scarred the world as a result of the fall that even our minds are now warped that we don't just think according to these sort of neutral categories, we don't think according to good categories, instead that, uh, that sin has warped the way that we uh, perceive reality, the way that we think. So this isn't, here in 1 Corinthians, this isn't a critique of humanity in general, but rather a particular human way of thinking that's devoid of God and his revealed wisdom because it's influenced instead by the flesh by sin. So that's the problem here. And in framing the rebuke this way, by calling out this human way of thinking, Paul does something that I find really interesting. He both corrects and he also encourages. This is important, so, uh, to, uh, so stay with me for a second. But by referring to this pattern as being human, all right, he, he kind of is going to normalize this way of thinking. This way of, of foolish, of sinful thinking is just kind of the natural pattern of humanity. Christ excluded. Christ is the only exception to this. For the rest of us, in order to be human, our humanity is therefore affected by sin such that uh, it is uh, interwoven in every bit of us. This is the doctrine of total depravity, that not only that every single human Christ ex excluded uh, has been affected by sin, but every part of us, our will, our mind, our emotions, every single part of us uh, has been affected by sin. So there's a sense in which recognizing this universality of sin should be encouraging. Why? Because it means I'm not alone. I'm not just some sort of freak. 
You aren't the only one who struggles with the things that you struggle with. That's comforting. There is this universality in sin. Misery loves company sort of idea. But on the other hand, Paul also says this should be abnormal. You shouldn't think in merely human categories. For those who have the spirit, we shouldn't act as mere humans. We shouldn't act as those who are merely in Adam because we're not just in Adam, we are in Christ. This will come to a head in a few chapters. In uh, chapter six, we'll read this, verses nine through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So Paul's theology tells him that sin is absolutely normal. It's absolutely natural for humanity. And yet there's also a sense in which it should be abnormal and unnatural for the Christian because we're no longer in Adam, but we're in Christ. We're no longer slaves to the flesh, but instead the spirit. And rather than just simply removing that tension, we've talked before, uh, as we've talked about uh, heresies and theological equipping, we've talked about one of the, uh, the, the uh, works of the enemy is simply to try to minimize the mystery and to remove all of these senses of tension. Rather than removing that tension, we should instead embrace it and allow it to minister to us. For example, some of you are kind of surprised that you still struggle with sin And in your sensitivity and your sorrow over your sin, you might feel despair over this lingering sin in you. And if that's you, you should take heart that sin is natural. Sin is normal for everyone, Christ excluded. Yes, you still struggle with sin. You will until you're glorified. But you're loved, you're forgiven, and you aren't saved by your morality. You're saved by Christ's perfections. But others, on the other hand, they aren't despairing over their sin In fact, they're perhaps arrogant, they're proud. Maybe you don't even care about your sin. Maybe you never think about it. Everybody does it, Christ forgives it anyway, so what's the big deal? If that's you, I would say don't take heart, instead take heed for the Christian, this should be abnormal and unnatural because God will not be mocked. So every single one of us will feel that tension and want to alleviate it somehow. We'll want to downplay the reality of residual sin or we'll want to distort grace and to make it this license to sin, but we should instead embrace that tension, recognize that though we aren't saved by our holiness, we're saved unto holiness, for holiness. So we're not called to live and think in merely human categories. We're called to think according to the new birth and the revelation of the Spirit of God. As Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there, the Corinthians are not thinking according to the spirit. They're thinking according to these human, fleshly, sinful categories. Let's look at verses five through six. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now throughout this section, Paul is resisting this tendency to divide his work from Apollos, to exalt his primacy or superiority or supremacy over Apollos. We naturally have a tendency to do that. All right? We naturally want to ask questions like, 
Who really made the Beatles? Was it John Lennon or was it Paul McCartney? Or, or do we really think, you know, is, is Jordan the goat? Could he really have done it without Scottie Pippen? Who was really uh, the, uh, who really wore the pants in that relationship? We have a way of not kind of appreciating the team but instead focusing on the individual. But throughout this passage, Paul is going to uphold this vision of non-competitive teamwork. Paul and Apollos, there aren't rivals. They're not competitors. They're, they're teammates, they're coworkers. And even that imagery isn't quite strong enough because you've all probably, we've all probably had teammates and coworkers who weren't about the team, but were about themselves. But that's not who Paul and Apollos are. So Paul and Apollos are teammates, but there's also this larger theological point here. This isn't just about Paul and Apollos. This will be really important in the book moving forward as Paul will then turn this same idea, this same idea of the way that Paul and Apollos are cooperating uh, together. There's this complementarity to the relationship. He's gonna turn that same sort of lens onto the church body as a whole in, uh, in chapter 12, that the church is a body with many members. They're all working together by God, gifted for the good of the body. In other words, the way that Paul and Apollos cooperate and they complement each other in their ministry in chapter three is kind of the foundation upon which he will then build this ecclesiology, this doctrine of the church. Uh, it's kind of the way that he will uh, construct his admonition to the larger church body in chapter 12. So this text is not only about how the Corinthians think of the apostles, but also how they think of each other and indeed how we should think of each other. He wants them to emulate this sort of vision of non-competitive teamwork, this image of working together for a common goal. And so he asks the question, what is Apollos? What is Paul? And there's a lot of ways he could have answered that. He could have said apostles. He could have said pastors. He could have said preachers. He could have said teachers. But notice what he says. He says servants, vessels, instruments, tools, servants through whom you believed. Yes, compared to the Corinthians, Paul has authority, but here he's not comparing himself to the Corinthians. Here he's comparing himself as the servant to the one who is the Lord. And when it comes to the master, the servant has no inherent rights or glory. Jesus tells his, this story in, uh, in Luke 17. We'll put it up on the screen in verses 7 through 10. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we have done, we've only done what was our duty. Paul's saying that's us, me and Apollos, we're mere servants. And this stands in stark contrast to all that the Corinthians value and uphold. It stands in stark contrast to all that we, as 21st century, uh, century Americans, value and uphold. We've talked about this before, but the importance of understanding this historical cultural context of Corinth. That Corinthian culture in particular boasted in oration and gifts and authority and glory and power and esteem and status. But Paul boasts in God. He says God is the one who does all the stuff, 
God is thus the one who gets all of the praise and all of the glory. Yes, Paul planted. Yes, Apollos watered. Chronologically, that's the order, by the way. Paul founded the church in Corinth, and then Apollos comes along and labored there. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gives the growth. And notice how theocentric, how God-centered this entire passage is. Here we see God assigns different tasks to different people. Then God is the one who gives the growth. Then in verse seven, he repeats that God is the one who gives the growth. Then in verse eight, God is going to be the one who judges the value of the work and rewards it accordingly. Then in verse nine, God is the one who is the owner of the field and the owner of the building. Now there's a way that we can read this and think that Paul's point is that preaching and teaching and pastoring are insignificant, right? That isn't the point at all. Paul's Paul's point is not to diminish the value of ministry. Far from it. This entire book of 1 Corinthians is Paul ministering, is Paul teaching. Preaching is important. It's essential, in fact. But his point is the individual preacher isn't. That's Paul's point. What matters so much isn't the subject who's doing the preaching, but rather the object that's preached. By the way, this is part of the reason while we have multiple guys that preach here so that you can see that model. Over the past four weeks, four different guys have shared this stage because what is important is not who's preaching, but who or what is preached. As long as Christ and the gospel and scripture is preached, it doesn't matter who's standing up here with a mic. And then this image of planting and watering will then inform the next three verses. Let's look at uh, verses seven through eight first. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So he begins and says, the the guy who plows and the water boy are nothing. They aren't anything. That sounds harsh. Like every time Carl walks into my office uh, and I say, the Bible says you're nothing, right? That sounds really harsh. Just think on that, Selah, right? Now, before we talk about what this actually means, I I want you to think for a second about how it feels. You guys love talking about your feelings, right? I'll tell you how it feels if you were a Corinthian in the first century. This whole image, this metaphor of plowing and watering feels dirty. This is mundane manual labor and that to a Corinthian is gross. It's offensive. It's unbecoming, it's lowly. This is a shocking image. This is like Jesus using the parable of the Samaritan. It's shockingly offensive because the Corinthians have glamorized privilege and status and image. And so such an image of a planter or a waterer working in the field is below them. It's beneath them. Now, bear in mind that Paul is not here rebuking Apollos or himself. So the point is that Apollos would read this and say, Paul says you're nothing, right? They aren't the problem. Paul and Apollos aren't the problem. There's no biblical evidence that either of them are elevating themselves or boasting in themselves. The problem is not that Paul and Apollos are narcissists, but rather that the Corinthians are so obsessed with status and esteeming the one who preaches that they discount what is preached or they elevate the preacher over the subject that is preached. And so we see these three main points in this passage. The first one, that the planter and waterer are nothing. The second one, that the planter and waterer are one, which sounds like a contradiction of the first point. Are they nothing or are they one? We'll get to that. And then third, that each receives wages according to his labor. Let's look at each of those in turn. First, the planter and waterer are are nothing, only God gives 
the growth. Now, you have to read this in context. As mentioned, Paul is not diminishing the role of preaching. He's not saying that preaching is inherently insignificant. Otherwise, I might as well just sit down right now. All right? The point isn't that preachers are insignificant, but rather that they are ineffectual in actually affecting change in their hearers. A planter, thinking of this, this sort of analogy of planting and watering, imagine that you're a farmer. A planter can plant and a waterer can water all day and absolutely nothing happens. And there's a, a number of reasons why that could be the case. Maybe the planter plants, but then nobody comes along and waters. Or maybe what is watered is just a dry seal, a field with no seed in it. Or maybe there's both seed and water, but there's a hard freeze like we had a couple of weeks ago. Or there's a locust hoard. Or, or there's some agricultural disease or whatever it might be that prevents growth. Likewise, preachers preach, teachers teach, but preachers and teachers can't affect change. God is the one who must move. God is the effectual agent in this. Your life is not changed by me or Zach or R.C. Sproul or John Piper or John MacArthur, but by the Spirit of God working uh, through those who fallibly, who with flaws, labor at planting and watering. This is why it's always interesting, by the way, when you attend some large evangelical conference And then you notice who the speakers are. What do they all have in common? They're all all from these large, growing churches as if the growth is owing to the wit or the wisdom or the cleverness or the faithfulness of the pastor. And in reality, a lot of churches are growing in spite of the unfaithfulness of their pastors. And a lot of really faithful pastors labor for years and never see any growth whatsoever. So growth or lack thereof is no sure sign of a pastor's faithfulness or even God's blessing. Planters plant, waters water, but God alone gives the growth. He's sovereign. He's the effectual agent. Second, the planter and the waterer are one. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It could mean that they're one in status. They share the same significance and value. Don't elevate the preacher. uh, Don't elevate the planter over the uh, waterer. Don't elevate the preacher over the teacher or whatever it might be or the waterer over the planter. That's one meaning that they're one in significance. Another meaning is that they're not only one in status, but also that they're one in task or goal, that the planter plants and the waterer waters. So they have different tasks, they have different jobs, different responsibilities, but they have the same goal, the same purpose, the same mission, if you will. Likewise, Paul and Apollos have different functions for the Corinthians. Paul plants the church, Apollos comes along and waters the church, but the goal is the exact same thing, which is to make disciples. So the planter and the waterer are one in status and they're also one in goal. I think both are actually intended by Paul here. And we use this image quite a bit at Parkway. We'll get to it again in chapter 12, but it bears repeating now that everyone here is gifted with different gifts for the good of the kingdom. That's a good thing. We don't need 400 Zacks. Trust me. We don't need 400 Tims. We don't need 400 Glenn Campbells or Wade Catlins or uh, uh, Lances or whoever it might be. We don't need 400 of those. We don't need 400 Jareds. Apparently, we don't even need one because we're going to plant him. (laughs) Imagine the illustration of a football team. Each person on that team has a different function. They have a different responsibility. They have a different job. And they should spend their time working on that individual function. 
So the kicker shouldn't be spending all of his time, he shouldn't spend hours in practice perfecting his spiral or perfecting his route running. The QB doesn't need to spend hours of his time blocking. They each have unique gifts that are all contributing to the same goal. The QB throws, the center hikes, the guards block, the running back runs, the receivers catch, the kicker kicks, but all of them are working toward the exact same goal. Different functions, different jobs, different responsibilities, different things that they're passionate about, different things they need to work on, and yet all contributing toward the same goal, which is to win the game. Likewise with the body of the church. Not all of you need to stand on a stage with a mic. Not all of you need to spend hours a day studying like uh, many of us on staff have to do. Maybe you're super passionate about helping minister to low-income families. Do that. God has given you that for the good of the kingdom and for the good of the body. So do that to the glory of God. Maybe you're passionate about overseas missions. Do that to the glory of God. Maybe you're passionate about helping women who are wrestling with uh, getting an abortion or counseling women who have had an abortion or, or, or adoption or a million other things that are good implications of the gospel. Those are all good gifts for the common goal of manifesting the kingdom of God. We aren't monolithic. This isn't a one-size-fits-all sort of approach to ministry. Not everybody has to have the same talents and the same gifts and the same passions as long as your overarching passion It's just the kingdom and discipleship. We can have different gifts and different uh, uh, tasks and so forth. We're all gifted in different ways with different passions and different talents. But our goal and our purpose is the same, to make disciples for the kingdom. Notice also, uh, by the way, where it says that the uh, planter and the waterer are nothing, only God gives the growth, and the planter and waterer are uh, one. That uh, Notice what he's not saying here is that uh, the means are irrelevant. He's not saying here that planting is unimportant. He's saying the planter is unimportant, all right? So this, this comes up a, a lot of times where you say, well, God is the one who gives the growth, so why do we preach? Why do we teach? Why do we do evangelism or whatever it might be? Because yes, God is sovereign, but he's sovereign over the particular means that he has appointed to accomplish some sort of task. So we share the gospel. This, this is not saying that evangelism is unimportant. It's saying the evangelist himself is rather insignificant. The third thing we see here, each will receive his wage according to his labor. Now, Paul's going to explain what he means by wages and rewards in the next section of the text. So hold on, we'll talk about that next week. I know you have a lot of questions about rewards, how that works. I wanna press pause on it and allow the text itself to address that. And then we can throw Zach under the bus if he doesn't adequately explain it. But the point of this reference here to wages is simply that God is ultimately the one who determines the value of the work. Let me give you an illustration of this. I've mentioned before my first job uh, was as a soccer ref whenever I was like 16. I only won a uh, ref one season and I absolutely hated it, mostly because at the end of the game I could pretty much guarantee at least a handful of parents would think I was the absolute worst ref in history. Some parents thought I was the, maybe the worst human in history. How dare I call a handball on Caitlin? She's never broken the rules. She's never even sinned, right? This was kind of the, 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 the apparently 
what you do if you're a parent of a, a soccer kid. And, uh, and so I didn't do it anymore because I couldn't handle that with fear of man. So I was 16 at the time. I didn't handle fear of man all that well. And in my immaturity, I looked to the crowd for approval. I wanted every parent to like me and to think I was a great uh, ref. When in reality, it didn't matter if they liked me or not. What mattered was what my boss thought, what the head referee thought. Did he think that I was being fair and impartial and actually adjudicating the game correctly? Well, the Corinthians were kind of like 16-year-old Jeff without all the acne. They assumed that the worth, the value of a speaker is, uh, is really what matters that the worth and value is kind of just bestowed on the speaker on the basis of the audience's response. A speaker was judged by the spectators in Corinthian culture, but Paul has pay, uh, taken pains to show that the Corinthian audience's perception is skewed. They don't know the rules. They think that folly is wisdom. They think wisdom is folly, so they're in no position to judge. They don't know the rules, so how could they assess the refs? Therefore, God is the only one who is qualified to judge, and he rewards accordingly. So God is the one who gifts the church. God is the one who causes the growth. And God is the one ultimately who judges faithfulness from beginning to end. It's all of God, all of grace. Apart from grace, that seed that is planted is just a pebble. Apart from grace, that water that's sprinkled on the field is gasoline. As, verse, uh, as Psalm 65 says, you, God, you are the one who visits the earth and waters it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. God is the one who gives the growth. Verse nine, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. In Greek, this actually reads like it was written by Yoda. It says something more literally like, God's coworkers we are. God's field, God's building, you are. Now when it says that Paul and Apollos are God's fellow workers, that can mean two different things and the meaning is very different depending on which is meant. The first way to take it is to read God's fellow workers and emphasize the word fellow. If you take it that way, you're basically saying that God and Paul are co-workers. That's one way to take this, is to say that we are fellow workers with God. Now there's a sense in which that can be true. Right? There, there's a sense in which we do work with God in ministry, but that, taking it that way, kind of goes against the entire thrust of the argument he's making in context, which is that God is the one who does all the stuff. In context, Paul isn't a co-worker of God's. He's an employee. In fact, he's a slave. So I don't think that that's Paul's point. Instead, I think the phrase mean, Apollos and I are fellow workers. We're co-workers who belong to God. All right, so we're not God's fellow workers. We are fellow workers who belong to God. Not that we're God's co-workers. We're his fellow workers who belong to God. We aren't his co-workers. We are his Servants. That, I think, better fits the context that God is the Lord of the workers. He's the master, and God is the owner of the field. Paul and Apollos, they're servants. They plant, they water the field. God is the owner of the field, so who are the Corinthians? Well, they're the field. 
By the way, I think Paul is here drawing on a lot of rich Old Testament imagery of the people of God being portrayed as a garden or a vineyard. For example, Isaiah 5, 1 through 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. This is of the people of Israel, the people of God. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. I say hill weird because I'm from uh, southeast Texas. Hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Notice there's a field, there's a vineyard, and then what else? There's also a watchtower or a building, which is what Paul also references, God's construction site, which by the way in, in Greek has this nuance, this, this word has this nuance of being a, a work in progress. The, the building isn't yet completed, it's being built up. We'll pick up that imagery of a building in progress next week as well. But for now, let me just kind of summarize this passage and give a couple of points of application. So in the historical context, Paul's dealing with this church that is experiencing conflict. There's divisions, there's schisms within the church, there's all kinds of problems within the church. We've mentioned a number of these. There's sexual morality, there's people suing each other, there's people getting drunk during uh, communion, there's people who are uh, denying the resurrection, there's all kinds of issues, but all of it is kind of rooted in this worldly thinking this lack of, uh, of being sensitive to the spirit and, uh, and to God's revealed word. So he's dealing with the church in conflict. There are these divisions, there are these schisms within the church and a symptom of that underlying conflict is that some Corinthians are saying that they are more holy for following, for, for following Paul and others are saying they're more holy because they follow Apollos. You were discipled by Apollos? Huh. I'm good friends with Paul himself. There's this spiritual one-upmanship happening. And so the past couple of chapters have demonstrated such thinking is worldly. It's fleshly. The jealousy, the strife, the division that the Corinthians are experiencing is not of the spirit but of the flesh. And though preaching is indispensable, preachers themselves are rather insignificant. What matters is not who's preaching but what is preached. Why? So that all the glory would go to God and to God alone. So there's two applications I wanna mention by going back to that image of a planter and waterer. I mentioned this briefly, but notice, in this passage you see who plants, the person who plants, and the person who waters, that's relatively insignificant. But that doesn't mean that seeds and water are insignificant. That would be a misapplication of the text. They're actually indispensable. God is the one who causes growth, but he does so through appointed means. He does so through the means of seed and water. So here are the two applications that I think that we should take from this text. Number one, to decrease your dependence upon particular preachers and teachers. That sort of attitude can exist even in our hearts today. I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Zach, I follow Jared. I follow John Piper, I follow Tim Keller, I follow John MacArthur, whoever it might be. I don't know of any actual schisms in Parkway where some of you say, you love me but hate Zach, or you love Zach but hate me, or vice versa, whatever it is, but if that exists in any of your heart to any degree whatsoever, it has to die. You follow Christ. Don't put your hope in a preacher. Every single one of us, we will all fail you except for Christ. 
So the first application is to decrease your dependence on particular preachers and teachers. But the second application is to increase your dependence on preaching and teaching. God is the one who causes the growth, but he does so through appointed means. For a field to bear fruit, it needs seed and it needs water. Likewise for you, to bear fruit as a Christian, you need truth, you need theology, you need gospel, you need the word. So come to theological equipping class or listen to it online. Come to the service or listen online. Listen to sermons, not only our sermons, other sermons from good pastors. Read the Bible, memorize scripture, start a Bible study, read good, solid theological works, not just the latest Christian living fluff that Barnes and Noble sells, deep doctrinal works on the nature and character of God and the gospel and so forth. If you don't know where to start, send us an email. We'd love to to give you some suggestions. In this passage, we see this beautiful, mysterious tension between the insignificance and the indispensability of those who labor in the gospel. Each week, every single week, seed is scattered. Water is poured upon this field. And you're God's field. You're being built up, you're being nourished each and every week with the word of God so that you might bear fruit and grow. And you're also being built up as God's building and then next week we'll pick up that imagery. For now, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the insignificance of those who labor in the ministry. I thank you that for 115, 16, 17 years or so that uh, you have had men who have stood on some sort of stage at Foot Baptist Church or Parkway Baptist Church or the Parkway Church and proclaim truth, proclaim the gospel, that you have planted seeds and you have watered it. I'm grateful for the, uh, the uh, laborers who have gone before us. I'm grateful for the gift of your word. I pray that we would hearken it, that we would heed it, we would uh, allow it to go into our hearts by your spirit and to bear fruit for your glory. So pray that you would help us, Lord, as we continue to uh, worship, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are glad because of your love for us. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.